0: Today, I want to do a message as we continue in our series on Everybody Gets to Play by examining this question, who does Jesus call? And the short answer to that, of course, is everyone, from the youth, from the youngest of us, to the oldest of us. Now, here at the Vineyard, we aren't in the business of entertaining people to put derriers on seats. We're not interested in being the church with the best show in town. We're not interested in being the best at this or the best at that. You know, it's nice to be really good at things. It's good to be excellent. You know, it's always good to go after those things. We're not interested in competing with other churches. You know, often when we talk amongst ourselves, I'm going to start changing this language in our church. But sometimes we'll say, we'll ask the question, or people ask me the question, you know, what what is it about the vineyard? What What makes the vineyard different from all the other churches? And sometimes when we ask the question that way, there's this connotation of, well, what makes us better? And that's actually the wrong question to ask, isn't it? And so we have to think about our language sometimes when we're asking certain questions. And so I've been mulling this over for weeks and weeks because as I've been trying to answer that question, I have, I've not enjoyed trying to answer that question. because I don't think it's the right question to answer. The question should be, what does the vineyard bring to the table? What flavor do we bring to the stew of all the churches? that God has on this earth? What is it that we contribute to the life of the greater church? In other words, how do we make the greater church better? You know, what flavor do we bring? And that's a much better question to ask. And so that's kind of what I've been thinking about. And one of those things is this, is that we're in the business of building disciples. Disciples who can feed themselves. Disciples who can criticize themselves. Disciples who grow and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in their lives and respond to it. You know, and uh, that sounds really nice and easy, doesn't it? But it's actually very difficult because as human beings, we are predisposed towards pride. We're predisposed towards looking at our own interests, doing our own thing and going on our own journey. We don't want to say no to ourselves. We don't want to criticize ourselves because, well, there's enough of that out there. And so to be a disciple is very challenging because you have to look in the mirror every once in a while and go, what, what do you need to sort out in your own life? And we don't like to ask those questions. But, you know, we're trying to be disciples, so we'll get there. We'll get there in the end. You know, Ephesians 4, 11, 13 says this. It'll come up on the screen. It goes, so Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You go to a lot of charismatic churches, you know, we sometimes make this mistake in charismatic churches that we get these people with these giftings, you know, people who have an uh, apostle type of gift. That means they're very good at planting churches and setting off church motions and stuff like that. People who are sorry, prophetic evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And once we have those kind of, we call that the fivefold ministry in some charismatic circles, once we have people, we have the fivefold ministry present, those people do everything. And everybody watches in awe, you know. And that's kind of the, ten, the temptation that charismatic churches have. But that's not why those offices, let's call them offices, exist. They exist to equip the saints. So that the saints go out and, as we call it in the vineyard, do the stuff. And part of the vineyard's call to the wider church is to remind everybody, hey, everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to do the stuff. And people like me, our job is to try and equip people and release them into it. And so we recognize that average Christians of all shapes and sizes are welcomed to do the works of the kingdom with Jesus. All of you are in the business of ministering the kingdom of God to this earth and into the lives of other people. And so we're going to explore that a little today. So just pray with me before we get to our next reading. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you invite us to come into this thing that you're doing, that faith isn't a spectator sport, that you are wanting to reach out to the world, but you're not content to do it by yourself. You want to do it with us. You want us to be partners in this new work that you're doing and recreating things. The so Lord, as we examine this today, I pray you would speak to each one of us. Lord, we open our hearts to you. Would you come and Encourage us. Would you come and convict us? Would you come and challenge us? Lord, would you help us to leave with something today? Something that we, we know we can go out and, and, and do with. Change us and shape us, Lord, to be the disciples you want us to be. And can guide my words this morning. And we pray. Amen. You can open up to Matthew chapter 25, and uh, we'll be reading from uh, one of Jesus' stories what he has to say. So Jesus says this, he's telling this this parable, if you like, and uh, his disciples. And he goes, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothing? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not close me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or needing clothes, or a sick or in prison, and did not help you. And he will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Right. Real grim reading that that particular passage, a hard one. And it introduces us to this concept of doing. And that's really what I want, to, want you to focus on today. And that's kind of what we're going to examine. Talking about faith and, and doing and how that incorporates into it. And so the first point I want to make today is this. Jesus is training disciples. And so the question is, are you available to be trained? You know, we live in what some people describe as the post postmodern age. Although, in reality, when you meet different people from different walks of life, we realize that we have all sorts of people around us with all sorts of worldviews. Not everybody is post postmodern in their thinking. Many Christians that you will know and possibly even yourself, especially here in the South, will have been heavily influenced by the type of thinking that came out of the modernism age. That was that age kind of running in the early ni- early 20th century, maybe right up even to the 80s possibly. And it was an age that was all about facts. It was all about what you could prove to be true. It was the scientific age. You know, If you can't measure it, if you can't prove it, it's not real. And so Christians of that generation spent a lot of time Trying to prove that God existed. You know, Josh McDowell with Evidence Demands a Verdict was a very popular book among evangelical Christians at that time. It was all about proof. Prove that God is real. Prove that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Everything was about proof, proof, proof. Now in the post postmodern age, if you talk to people, nobody really cares about the fact. Have you noticed that? Just watch the news. Nobody cares about the fact. They really care about feeling. But this is the way I feel. This is my reality. So therefore, that's how I feel. That's how it must be. We live in a very peculiar age now, but many people you know and many Christians you might be friends with are still living back in the modernist age. So when they talk to people, you'll notice they're trying to prove things all the time, trying to prove truth, trying to do all this kind of stuff. And so the thought patterns of modernism have influenced the way we do Christianity quite a lot. And to the point that it told us that faith had mostly to do with what we believe. It was all cognitive. Hence, the practice of just going to a meeting, and there being an appeal, and you basically go forward, you believe, and you say the prayer, and you go, you're done, you're saved, you're in. And then you go back to doing what you did last Monday, because you've said the prayer, you're saved now, sanctified, boom. So, you know, go party hard till Jesus gets back, because I'm all forgiven. And so that's where that thinking comes from. That thinking comes from the modern age, it was all about belief, as long as you believe, in your heart and testify with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, bang, you're in. Therefore, let the party begin. You know, let's go. And so you see this thinking from a previous age still affecting people to a great deal. But it still begs the question, did Jesus really train his disciples to primarily just believe things or did he train them to do things? What does Jesus train his church you do. You know, you just have to take one read through, say, the book of Matthew, for example, and it quickly tells you that belief and truth are actually really important. So, the folk in the modernist age had something. Belief and truth are important. There is an ultimate truth. Our society doesn't like that kind of claim, but there's an ultimate truth. You either know it or you don't. You know, and most of us should be seeking it. Will we ever find all of it 100% true? Maybe not. But there is an ultimate truth. But, there's a big but, but when it comes to faith, when it comes to living a life with Jesus, when it comes to being an authentic follower of Jesus, a living faith is revealed largely by what you do. You know, psychologists all over the world will say this thing. They'll say, I can tell what you believe by what you do. Don't tell me what you believe. I'll figure it out by what you do does what you do show that you believe in Jesus does show you what you do show that you're, you're somebody seeking to live life in humility and you're seeking to love others as you love yourself or does what you do reveal that you love yourself more than you love others which means you believe something else you buy into the individualistic secular viewpoint that we live in here in America that you look after number 1 you know it's about getting yourself ahead it's about being where you need to be. It's about getting what is yours. You know, this is the society we live in. And it affects the church all the time. You know, I go to pastor conferences all the time. And half the time, most of us spend spend there. Most of us have to repent of trying to make our church the best church in town. And why? Because we want to be the best pastor in town. Why do we want to be the best pastor in town? Because we get identity from it. That's got nothing to do with the call of God. The call of God is all about this. Submit to me and do what I ask you to do. That's it. End of story. You know? And it doesn't matter if it's easy, it doesn't matter. If, some of us, God's going to ask us to do stuff that's real easy. Going to give us the best boss ever. Submitting to that boss is going to be so good because you know, like, we'll walk and say, oh, I'm having a difficult day. Like, take the afternoon off. You're like, it's so awesome. Some of you are going to get the call that Jeremiah got. And you spend your life. Nobody's ever going to listen to you. You're going to have one friend. Whenever you, actually, probably you won't be, actually, everybody in this room, I think I can guarantee you, is going to have a better call than Jeremiah did, right? But if you ever feel sorry for yourself, go read the book of Jeremiah, okay? Because that dude had it rough. To be a follower of Jesus is to believe his words, yes, but it's also to do his work. To do his word. And we, each one of us, have to go back to that. Go back to the basics all the time. We call it in the vineyard, going back to the main and plain. Are you loving Jesus and doing what he wants you to do? Or has your faith become about something else? Because there's lots of things. I mean, like, you know, at, at a meeting this week with a couple of guys in church, and we're talking about Christian philosophy, you know. It's all up in the head. Stuff. And it's good. It's good stuff. I enjoy it. It's like, you know, talking about different denominations and the way they think. It's, it's all fun. Right? And there's nothing wrong with it. But there has to come a point where you stop talking philosophy and you actually go do something, you know? And so, you know, that's what we do. We we talk, we have our little meeting on a whatever Tuesday night, have fun, talk about stuff, and then we go back to real life where we have to go actually walk the walk and do the stuff that Jesus wants us to do. So, what did Jesus do? Let's have a look at that. You know, in his message to Cornelius, Peter as he's preaching to them, he summarizes what Jesus is saying, and he says to them, and it's not going to come up here, so just listen. goes in Acts 10, verse 37. It goes, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. He's talking to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family. He goes, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went around doing good, okay, not just miracles, but doing good and healing those who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. And so just doing good things seems to be pretty important. And so as you go through the New Testament, you'll notice that Jesus did a bunch of things. Number one, he welcomed, he healed, he discipled, and he commissioned. So he welcomed the sinners, those who were doing things that he disapproved of, but he welcomed them nonetheless. He didn't let what they were doing Get in the way of relationship. This is the problem we have here in America today, by the way. Is we let what people believe and we let what people do hamper relationship. Just have to look at politics, and that shows you exactly how it's going. You know, we judge people by what they do, but we also judge their worth by what they do, and that's the mistake we make. Because their worth is intrinsic. God gives a person worth. What they do is just what they do. And so, Jesus welcomed the sinner, and he invited them to put on righteous, righteousness. He said, hey, come, come follow me. Turn away from that stuff. Follow me, and I will give you life in all its fullness. He healed those in pain. He used miracles. Obviously, we see that all over the place. But he also healed people by breaking social taboos that were causing all sorts of other types of bondage and pain to people. You know, his treatment of women is a prime example of that. You just go look through the Gospels, look at how Jesus treated women. It was pretty revolutionary for rabbis of his time. And then he discipled these followers to look at and see the world through his eyes and to imitate him in how they ministered to others. So, you know, he teaches the disciples all the time, teaching them things, teaching them things about the kingdom so that they would begin to get Get it and understand it so that when he ascended to the Father, they would go do the same thing, the same type of good, you know, taking risks and trying to do the same type of miracles. And then that leads me to his final thing. He finally commissioned those disciples to go and spread the message, to do his works and to teach and train others to do the same. As I prayed earlier, being a follower of Jesus is not a spectator sport. You know, there's a room for that kind of thing. There's a couple of churches here in town who they set themselves up to do a great show. And you can go there and you can be really impressed by what they do. You go in, as you're going in, the band's playing YouTube songs. And they're not just playing a YouTube song. They're killing it. They're playing it well, you know. You're walking out, oh, of this church. People are smiling. Like, everybody on the greeting team is, like, beautiful. You're like, wow. People in this church are, like, good looking, you know. And... You walk in, the pastor's like way slicker than I am. He's like, all his trousers are skinny jeans, you know, and he's like, he's he's ripped, you know, know, it's not like I hit the gym once a week. This guy's hitting the gym seven days a week, and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's glamorous, you know, and and the show goes, and the worship's amazing, the preaching comes up, and they're like, wow, you're blown away, but you look around, and everybody's just watching, it's like a spectator sport. Now there's room for that because there's one or two churches they set themselves up to get the lost in so that people who don't know Jesus can come and hear the gospel for the first time. So there's a space for it. But eventually those people who begin to follow Jesus should not continue spectating. They've got to get up and begin to seek and say, hey, what can I do with my giftings in last life that's going to start looking like the type of things Jesus would have done? How can I go out and be a shining light? And so, there comes a time where you have to ask yourself the question as a disciple. Are you ready to join the team? You know, are you ready to join the Jesus revolution? What is the revolution? The revolution is this. Jesus has come to usher in the kingdom of God. He's come to bring the kingdom of God into this earth, and he invites his followers to extend that kingdom to the lives of other people and to show them basically what God looks like, what the goodness of God is, even even amidst this hard life that we live, you know? Luke 10 verse 1 says this, after the Lord appointed 72 others. So he sent out the 12, and then he sends out 72 others. And they sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to his harvest field. I mean, Jesus are killing my voice, so I'm going to wave this cup around. Hopefully it doesn't pop off and splash somebody. This passage in Luke it, and this act of Jesus sending out the 72 kind of stresses the point that we're making is that the kingdom work wasn't just for Jesus and his selected. 12, you know, because Jesus kind of, there was kind of like a status of friendship with Jesus, you know. There was Jesus, then there was James, John, and Peter. They got to like do the cool stuff. Like when Jesus went up the mountain, they were the only three disciples that went up the mountain to do cool stuff, right? And then there was the other guys, then he had his 12, and they like, they went everywhere with him and did all that stuff. And then there was all the other people following him. And so what Jesus does is he shows by he does stuff with the three, then he sends out the twelve, and then he does a thing where he sends out the seventy-two. And that message there to his little group of followers at that point was, hey, I can send everybody and anybody to go do this stuff. Reminding us that everybody has a role to play. And so each one of us needs to ask this question as we're trying to figure out our discipleship. Do I have a part to play in the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel being extended to the world of my influence and relationships. How can I, how can you, welcome, heal, disciple, and commission other people in in their lives, in their callings, and what God's doing in their lives? How can we begin to do the things that Jesus did? That's quite a big question. You might be intimidated by it. But It doesn't have to be intimidating because it doesn't have to be some sort of extravagant ministry. It's a problem we have in Christian churches. Everybody's like, oh, you know, I'm just a plumber. I don't have a big calling in my life. I'm never going to be a preacher. Moan, moan, moan. No, it's not about that. This thing that Jesus is doing is done one person at a time by another person being willing to share whatever God's done in their life with that person regardless how small it is. It looks like a high school or a middle school student being kind to those and to other kids who people who the other kids aren't kind to. About being willing to get to know and be nice to people that no one else is giving a second look. For. This is the type of thing the kids in our church are doing and it's making a difference to somebody's life. One one person at a time. That's how like the kingdom advances. You know, the early church, we like to talk about all the amazing miracles, and we love miracles. We want to see more of them. But really, the early church grew and expanded fast because people were just loving other people one person at a time. They were loving them like they loved themselves. They gave them honor, like we spoke about last week. You that. You can go catch up online with it. They honored other people regardless of whether they came up to their standard or not. And so, small actions and small steps eventually cause large ripples in the lives of other people. So don't, don't, don't discount yourself if you think you're not that gifted. You don't have much to offer. You have everything to offer to the person in front of you. All you have to do is pour out what you can for them, and then move on. It is really as simple as that. We like to overcomplicate faith. We like to, you know come up with all the solutions to the world, but really the solution to the world is one person at a time really caring about another person that's right in front of them at that point time. If everybody did that, the world would change. But they don't. Why? Because we We have to reject yeah. our selfishness. And so each one of us can do that. You know, each one of us can, can be somebody that impacts the other person. You know, and I, I invite you to do that because we have enough Christians wanting to go and consume church or who want to be just seen as leaders and want to be taken seriously or given respect and honor. And they're, they're getting into the political shenanigans, to try to get themselves ahead in, in wherever they are. People do it in churches all the time. But don't be one of those people. That's not the call of the kingdom. The call of the kingdom is to pour yourself out, to impact the life of the person in front of you. That's, that's the call of the kingdom. If you're worried about what God wants you to do, what ministry has for you, don't worry about that. Just do whatever you can for the person in front of you, and God will direct your path to where it needs to go. Don't use the person in front of you to lift yourself so that you can get ahead. Just so ask yourself that. Have you done that this week? Did I use somebody else so that I could get ahead? Or am I pouring myself out for others so that they can get ahead? Because how you sow is how you go. I like that. I just made that up right there. Probably heard it somewhere else and stole it. But how you sow is how you go. Think about that. Think about anything that you're doing. You know, you, you've got a difficult situation. How are you responding to that situation? How you sow is how you go. Because how you respond to that situation is probably how other people are going to respond to you in the future. You know? you got to... Whatever it is, you apply to your thing. But how you sow is how you go. Treat the people around you the way you want to be treated if you were them. Because if you don't, you know, that's going to come back to you. You know, the Hindus call it karma. We don't call it that. We call it you reap what you sow. But how you sow is how you go. But remember that. Just begin to weave that into your everyday life. Ask yourself at nighttime when you go to bed. Hey, did I sow as I hope to reap today, or did I not? And if you didn't, look yourself in the mirror. And say, "Okay, do better tomorrow." and forgive yourself, but do better tomorrow. And if you have to go back and fix some stuff, go back and fix it. But ask yourself that question every day. If you continue to do that, you'll find that you'll be continue to you'll start to check yourself when you're engaging with other people, and instead of seeing them as and, as, as someone who is in opposition to you, someone stopping you from getting to where you need to be, you'll stop and go, wait a minute, what do I need to be for this person right now so that they can get to where they need? It? You begin to sow into the lives of other people like that, and God is going to sow into you. But if you don't, if you're just trying to get yourself ahead all the time, God's not going to let you get there. God's not stupid. He's looking to get people into places that who, who, will, who will invite him in who will let him use them, you know? And so that's that's what we each have to be, you know? I have to challenge myself that all the time. You know, I've got, how many kids do we have? 12? Like five, five kids. I lose count. I don't even know when their birthdays are anymore. There's too many of them. They keep, keep doing stuff in my house. But it's the same thing each day. And I, it, it comes as close to home. You know, we all talk about, oh, that's other people's how we treat other people. Right? It's not about that. You know, often my kids want want to do something, they want to go somewhere, they want to want to watch something on TV, and all of it is getting in my way. Right? And I get frustrated at them. Don't don't, don't agree with this, kids. I get frustrated with them, and I, I and I and I and I snap at them, and I say no to them when I don't need to say no, and I get frustrated. Why do I get frustrated? Because they're in my way. No offense. Because I, I want to sit down and I want to watch a bit of rugby. Or I want to sit down and have a cup of tea. I just want to chill. Someone's asking me to do something. And you know, and then you do the, the secret thing. that You know you love your wife. Your wife loves you. But each of you does it. Go ask, go, go ask your dad. Go ask your mom. <laughs> and then we start texting each other. I sent them to ask you. I don't want to deal with this right now. And so we get frustrated with them. And so I, I, we sow selfishness into them. Because they see us getting frustrated and snapping at them and telling them, oh, just leave me alone. I'll, I'll deal with it later. And so what, and and I get to the end of the day and I look at the mirror and I'm like, man, I've got to worry about my son doing that to his kids one day. You know? Because, I mean, you know, and so the challenge is it's not just me preaching at you. It's me preaching at me. We, we've got to think about what we're sowing to other people, to our families, one another here at church. What are you communicating by your behavior? And is God happy with it? And are you, as someone who's trying to follow God, are you really serious about trying to please Him by trying to be a vessel of His goodness to other people around you? And uh, you'll find each one of you here yeah, will look in the mirror when you ask that question. You'll say, "No, no, no not really. Maybe forty percent. I'm forty percent into what God wants." But the challenge is the disciples to get that up to. Then up to sixty, then up to seventy. Hey, maybe one day you might actually have a day where it's a hundred. Then you wake up the next day, and you mess it up and go back to ninety-five. But the journey of disciple is trying to get into, trying to get to that. It's not about being the holier and holier; it's about just being more of a person who says yes to Jesus all the time. Right? I've gone off script long enough. Where am I? Somewhere around here. So it's in the giving that you receive from God, right? It is in submitting that God lifts you up. It is in honoring others that God honors you. And it's in saying no to yourself that you find God giving you yes. Sometimes. Sometimes God gives you the desire of your heart so you get the yes and the yes. And that's cool. So, including, so in concluding, when the verse that we read today says to equip his people. Or works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Who is, it, who is excluded from that invitation? What age? What ethnic background? What man? What woman? Well, the answer is none of us are excluded. We all get to play. We're all called to do the stuff of the kingdom. And it's how we treat one another. Every once in a while, we'll pray for someone and we'll get to something really cool. Maybe even like a real bona fide miracle. Who does Jesus call? He calls you. Why doesn't the band come on up and move to ministry time? If you can, why don't you stand with me? Uh, Let's just welcome the presence of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you just come and settle in the room and just bring the ministry of the Father to us?